All right, I say who's good. You say he's good. Who's good? I say all the, y'all say time, all the. Amen. And guess what? We got some notes. We're ready to go. Resurrection Sunday came early. My notes have come back from the dead. Hallelujah. Today, oh my. Um, today is Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday. You can tell by the shirt that I'm wearing. Uh, last year I was complaining that I didn't have a Palm Sunday shirt, and so my friend Laurel uh, got me one. And so this week year I'm complaining that I don't have a million dollars. Just, is, we'll see what happens. Um, we are, we're celebrating this, this week that we're about to step into is the greatest week in, in human history. And we're walking toward next Sunday, we're going to celebrate the resurrection of our Savior, amen? That Jesus is alive, he's no longer dead. And, and this week, we look at Palm Sunday, you remember the scene, Jesus is on a donkey walking toward Jerusalem, and, and that, that gives us the context. And it says in Mark 11, many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David, Hosanna in the highest. As you can see, the people of Israel are geeked. They are excited about this Messiah that's come at last. He's here to restore national Israel to her glory, to rescue her from her enemies, the Roman Empire, to heal the sick, to raise the dead, to, to cast out demons in the name of Jesus. He was going to reign forever and ever. And they are grabbing branches off of trees and waving them in the air like they just don't care. These people are excited about their Savior, their Messiah, coming. But oh, how quickly, if you know the story, how quickly it turns south. And this morning what we're going to see is Jesus goes from being hailed as a king to being betrayed by one of his closest friends, by being denied by one of his even closer friends, by, by his own countrymen that, that he came to. They, 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 they throw him under the bus. The Roman leaders, the Israel leaders, the Jewish leaders, and the world that he came to save crucifies him. This morning what we'll see, we'll see all the ways that people failed Jesus in this final week, and we want to turn that in on ourselves and see the ways that we fail him too. And my, my prayer for us this morning is that we may be filled with conviction and repentance in areas that we need to confess of our own sins, but then we're going to see that, that Jesus used those very acts by those people against him. He used those very acts to become their Savior. And my other prayer is that we may, may, we may be filled with hope and delight in who our Savior is for us. This morning we want to ask the question as we consider this final week, what was it that actually killed Jesus? A little bit of a murder mystery this morning. What was it that actually killed our Savior? The first one we're going to look at is being betrayed. He was betrayed. Uh, Matthew 26 talks about uh, the betrayer. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and he said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment he saw an opportunity to betray him. So the leaders of, of, of Israel, they hated Jesus. Why? Because he had claimed to be God. And they didn't like the things that he was saying and teaching, and so they wanted to kill him. And when Judas learns about this, he willingly sells out his closest friend, a man who he spent almost every day for the last three years with. For what? For 30 pieces of silver. Interestingly enough, that was the same amount of money that it would cost to buy a slave in that day. And it was also, if you were an average Joe, it was about 100 days um, of your, your wages, a paycheck. So what we see here, Judas was a lover 
of money more than he was a lover of Jesus. Now, he covered it with a phony external relationship, at least at the end here. Pretended like he was his friend, gave him that kiss. But what, what do we see? I mean, and, and Judas wasn't just anybody, right? He was one of the guys that Jesus had sent out two by two. Judas is, is he's casting out demons. Jesus, Judas did a lot of things for Jesus. But at the end of the day, he gives up his own master for some coin. Leads to his death. Now, if you're like me, you'd probably say, I'd never do that. I would never be like Judas. I would never give up a third of my annual salary just to sell out one of my friends. I would certainly not for cash throw one of my, my loved ones under the bus, a friend or a family member. But Randy Alcorn, he said these words convicting as I read them. He said, work, Satan works on the assumption that every person has a price. Often, unfortunately, he's right. Many people are willing to surrender themselves and their principles to whatever God will bring them the greatest short-term profit. Our selfishness in our flesh knows no limit. We will do what it takes to get what we can in the now. In Matthew, 20, Matthew 6, Jesus says it this way. He says, no one can serve two masters. He'll either hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't serve God in money. He says you get one master at a time. So if you're not serving God, you're serving something else. And he does a heart check here, back up in verse 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So what we see is Judas, he treasured money more than Jesus, put more value in the dollar bill than in his Savior, ultimately trusted, trusted in that money more than the God of the universe. So let's ask this. We turn this in on ourselves. Where are the priorities in, in our lives? What is it that, that I serve? What is it that you serve? What is it that we value or trust in the most? Well, it's got to be, we got to look at the way that we live. How do we view our income? What are our shopping and spending habits like? How do we view our retirement, our 401k, our, our Roth IRA? And a lot of times what will we'll be very telling is what happens when one of those things is threatened to be taken away from us? What happens when the state of Alaska says, I'm taking away half of your PFD? What happens when you might be on the brink of losing a job, when, some, when, when something's threatening to take away your money, and when we put a false sense of security into our savings account, it evidences that we trust in that more than in our God. Now we know, we know money won't save us, right? We, we know this on paper, Psalm 49, they cannot redeem themselves from death by paying a ransom to God. Now, we know death, that, that money can't save us. John Piper says it this way. When you are dying, money walks away from you. It, it abandons you. It will not go with you to help you. And nothing that you bought will, can go with it either, right? So when we die, we're not taking any of our possessions with us. And no matter how much money we have at the end of it all, rich or poor, we will all die. And we, we know intuitively that money can't save us. But how often in my life do I live as though it can and I put my, my sense of security and, and how much I was able to put my Roth this year and, and how much I've been able to get off the principal of my mortgage. And that's where I try to find safety and security. Now I am, true confessions, I am, a, I'm, I am very cheap. I mean frugal, sorry. I always mispronounce that word. Um, would I willingly, if, if Jesus, if my Jesus asked me to, if he asked me to give money to somebody, and I'm talking about like something where it would hurt, not, not an insignificant, insignificant amount, I have to change my spending habits, would I, not just would I give that over, but would I do it willingly, cheerfully, 
What if he asked me to take a lower paying job so to be with my, my kids and my, my wife more often? Or he says, I'm going to put you in a better opportunity to serve me. Or, or maybe he says, I want you to go to the mission field. And no, you're not, not only are you not going to collect a paycheck, you're going to have to ask other people for money. And where's my heart when he asks me to do that? Am I willing to cheerfully step into that? What am I trusting in? Who do I serve? If we value, listen, anything more than Jesus, we've made our choice. And we're no better than Judas. And our, the depth of our own sin nature it knows no bottom. That we will do anything to protect ourselves, to elevate ourselves, including throwing other people under the bus. The love of money per, per, permeates our hearts deeper than we'll ever know. And we see here that the first culprit, the love of money killed Jesus. The love of money that, Jesus, that Judas betrayed him and it killed Jesus. Second thing, condemned. He was condemned. Matthew, Mark chapter 15. Pilate was the, um, he was the governor of Judea, the area that where Jesus in Jerusalem, where he was tried. Um, and so that was, he's sort of the Mike Dunleavy of the area in Judea there. And so as the governor, he has this choice to make. Look at uh, Mark 15. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they, whom they asked. There was this tradition where the Roman government who was oppressing the Jewish people, they would release to them one prisoner from, from the Jewish uh, jail system. And so he said, who do you want? Um, and among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there it was a man called Barabbas. So this is a legit bad guy. He says, the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews, referencing Jesus? He says, this is probably the guy you want because he's not hurting anybody. For he had perceived, verse 10, that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. He knew that these guys just had a chip on their shoulder. They were jealous of Jesus. They didn't like Jesus. But Jesus hadn't hurt anybody. He, he was an innocent man. Verse 11, but the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. So what's going on here? Why, why did Pilate hand Jesus over to the people? It's certainly not because he thinks he's guilty. We know, you read the Gospels, he knows it. He, tried, he says Jesus hasn't done anything. And in fact, in Matthew, Pilate's wife goes, I just had this dream from God, and I'm telling you, don't do it. And he even tries to offer Barabbas, a guy who actually was a murderer, in his place. But the crowd says louder and louder, we want Jesus. So why does he do it? And why does he do it? Verse 15, underlined it there. Wishing to satisfy the crowd. Wishing to satisfy the crowd. So what's going on here? Well, it, I don't, we don't exactly know Pilate's motives, but, but he wants to satisfy this. Remember, that this is a group of people, the Jewish people who have been oppressed by the Romans for decades. This is, this is not an empathetic crowd. And, and they have been, they would love to rise up in an insurrection and take back their land. And so he knows these people, it's already a testy ground. And he doesn't want to push them. He also might just simply be tired of dealing with the people and with Jesus. And he just, Pilate wants a nap. So he's just like, here, this just fine, you can have him. Or maybe he just simply wants to, as, as often we all do, wants to be accepted and affirmed by this group of people. Now, I am, I am a chronic card-carrying people-pleaser. This is my M.O., right? Confess that. Hello, my name is Justin, and I'm uh, one who wants the approval of man, right? Hi, Justin. That's, okay. Um, 
not as sympathetic as our Celebrate Recovery crowd. That's cool. Um, what, <laughs> I remember, so I, I want everyone to like me. I want everyone to love me, right? And this is kind of where, so in high school, um, my, two of my friends and I, Chet and Steven, we, um, we formed uh, a little group we called the Wedgie Patrol. Now we would, at lunch, at our Christian school, we would run around giving people wedgies. Don't tell the elders. This is just between you and I, all right? Uh, budget's coming up this year, and I want to stay on the payroll. Um, so my, my, one of my closest friends, the worship leader today, Jacob, sadly, he was not exempt from our um, targeting. And um, now, mirac- listen, I didn't want to give my best friend a wedgie, okay? Can, I just, can we just get that out on the table? Um, not a very best friendly thing to do. But I had a deeper desire to be approved by Chet and Stephen and this crowd of people in the bleachers yelling, wedgie, wedgie, right? <gasps> Crucify his Hanes, right? Like, that's what we want. So wishing to satisfy the crowd? Sorry, Jake. And up they went. And God forgave, and we've moved forward. We've, we've kind of processed through that. But how many times, how many times do we go along with the crowd when we clearly know this is not the right thing to do. This is certainly not what God would have me to do. Uh, there are times when I'm preaching, and I'll come to a text. Like when we were preaching through Romans, and we got to Romans 13, and we were talking about obeying the government. That's not a popular subject. Or, or to press in on some sins, especially more and more in our society, they're controversial even within the church. And we've got to preach what God says. Man, I'd much rather, I, I would love to dodge those emails and those conversations and, and just tell everybody what they'd like to hear or what would be easier and more palatable, insert a cute story and a, and a funny joke, wishing to satisfy the crowd. And sometimes we know, man, we hear people bashing on someone, gossiping about someone, throwing them under the bus, and we know that it's not right to jump in with them, but we don't want to be the prude. We don't want to stand out, especially now in the world of, of the way that things can get backlashed on social media. And how many wrongs throughout history have been done because pleasing the crowd was easier than taking a stand? when our Lord and Savior, our Master, tells us something to do, we know what we should be doing, but we don't do it, we're no better than Pilate. We throw Jesus under the bus just like he did. It was the people, the pleasing of people, the pleasing of people that killed Jesus. Pilate washed his hands, said, have at it. Number three, he was also denied. It's a little bit closer to home here for Jesus. Now, Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him, those scary servant girls, and said, you also were with the Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And he went out to the entrance. Another servant girl saw him and said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you, are, you two are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Because I hear that drawl. I, I know you're from Galilee. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and said, and, and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And if you've heard the story, you know what that tells us. Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. Remember in the upper room, not too long before this, Peter was boasting to everybody, I would die with you, Jesus. I'm not going anywhere. And now just a few hours later, when Cinderella comes up to him and says, hey, don't you know Jesus? He folds. Why? Why? Sometimes we deny Jesus because of the, the, the greed that we saw in Judas's heart. Sometimes it's for that positive affirmation that Pilate went. But sometimes, sometimes it's fear. Sometimes we're afraid of a negative reaction from people. 
was at K Beach a couple weeks ago where I student teach, uh, or substitute teach uh, time to time, and I was standing there talking to one of the, the staff members, a guy I've been praying for to come to know Jesus for quite some time, and felt like there was an opening in the conversation where we could, we could go that direction. And I saw it there, but as, the, as that opened up, I found myself hesitate. And eventually the door closed and we went our separate ways and I didn't say anything. Now, wh- why was that? What, what's, what's going on there? I, I don't know. I mean, I know we don't, we don't, we don't want to go on that side of being like a you know, Bible-thumping, you know, kind of rude person where it's like, take Jesus. You know, but like, we, at the same time, I'm not, I'm not in danger of going to that error. I think what I was afraid of was simply how he was going to react. That even me, even, even a, a pastor can get scared of sharing his faith with, with somebody. Now, I say it out loud, and, and what did I think was going to happen? Like, what would be the worst possible scenario there? Like, he's not going to yell, like, heretic, get, get him, and all the staff comes out, it's like throwing staplers and paper clips at me. Like, you know what? That's probably not going to happen. So, so what was it? And I imagine one day when I'm standing before God, and, and he's going, man, I'm there to give an account of, of what I did on here, on, here on earth. And why didn't I talk to this guy? Why didn't I share Jesus with this guy? When eternity's on the line, his soul is at stake. And what would be my good answer there? Well, God, I was afraid he'd give me a look. Right? He'd go, huh? And I'd go, ah! <laughs> what? I mean... There's going to be an awkward pause and a, like, no, I'm not into that. Like, no, I mean, I mean, what is the worst thing that could possibly happen? Is that the reason that I'm going to shy away from sharing him with him, the greatest news that has ever been known? But like Peter, I'm afraid. I get wrapped up in the fear of man. Now, I don't think Peter was afraid of this servant girl putting him in like a half Nelson or something. I don't think that was his fear. But you think about where he was. This is a little bit scarier than the elementary school that I was in. I mean, Jesus is on trial, and it looks like things are going south fast. He could be killed. And the last thing Peter wants to do is be up there with him on a cross. But you say, I mean, what's the worst that could happen to Peter? They kill him? He beats Jesus to paradise? The worst that man can do, us, do to us is send us home early. And that's an extreme situation that most of us will never face. So the question is, who do we fear, man or God? Now, we could answer this correctly on a, on a test, but our heart is going to reveal which one, who we fear, by the way that we speak or don't speak, like Peter, by the way we spend our money and our time, like Judas, by the decisions we make, like Pilate. Hebrews 13 says it this way, don't love money, don't, don't be like Judas, be satisfied with what you have, for, here's the reason, for God has said, I will never fail you, I will never abandon you. He says, you have all you need, you have your God there with you. You have all that you need. And then in verse 6, so we can say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, so I will have no fear. What can mere people do to me? He says, if we trust this promise, if we trust the promise that our God is here with us and that he'll always be here for us, then what else do we need? What else do we have to be afraid of? I mean, think about it. I mean, let's just even say the worst. I mean, let's say our bank account runs out. We have nothing. And most of us are not in legitimate, legitimate danger of that happening. But even if it does, do we really think that God, the creator of everything, the most powerful being in existence, is going to go, gee, that's a stumper. I don't know. I have unlimited access to all the resources of the known universe, but pff, that's a curveball, man. <laughs> I didn't see that coming. Or do you think that, that our God is afraid of a, a K Beach elementary school teacher? Or a servant girl, he's hiding behind us. Oh no, they've been working out. You know, like I don't that that's not 
We're going to stand before him one day and give an account of every word and every deed. Was it done by faith in the fear of our God or done out of fear of man? God's the one we give an account to. God's the only one we should fear. But like Peter, I take my eyes off Jesus and I fear. I put them on the world. It was the fear of man, the fear of man that killed Jesus. Then we see that he was crucified. He was crucified. If we read the story, it's a dark one. This is, they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Now, are they saying this because they want to honor him? Are they saying this because they really, really believe he's the Messiah? No, look at the next part. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, saying, you would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days? Save yourself. Where are you at now? Where's your power now? If you're the son of God, then come on down from that cross. Show us. Prove it, Jesus. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, he saved others, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel, so let him come on down from the cross, and then we'll believe. He trusts in God, deliver him now, or let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God, show us. And even the robbers up there hanging on the crosses next to him, who were crucified with him, they also reviled him in the same way. What's going on here? The people of Israel... God's own beloved chosen people are not only rejecting his claims to be God, but they're mocking him to his face. They're spitting in his face. Now, why would you reject someone who came to lovingly save you? And why do we do that? The issue is control. Ultimately, the people did not want to let God be God. They wanted to be their own gods. This is a pride issue. See, they didn't want to come to God on his terms through Jesus. They wanted to come to God on their own terms. And this is what pride does. Pride says, I want to be in control of my own life. And why would we say that? Why would we say this? When there's a God who says, I'm here, I'll always be here, I've given you everything you need, what we're telling that God is, we don't trust you, so I'm going to take the steering wheel because I don't trust you to be my God. It's the exact same thing Adam and Eve did in the garden. When God said, trust me, it's better not eat of that fruit. But they saw it and they said, it looks good. God, you don't know what you're talking about. So the eight of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they decided, we'll decide what's right and wrong, good and evil in our lives, not you, God. And sin enters into the world. The pride of life killed man, and the pride of life killed Jesus. Killed Jesus. The pride of life. And we remember the words that Jesus said on the cross after all this had happened to him. He said, it is finished. Jesus was killed. On Good Friday, we, we paused to remember that. Now, Judas's love of money had betrayed him. Pilate's pleasing of people had condemned him. Peter's fear, fear of man denied him and got out of the way. Didn't help him. And then the pride of the human race crucified him. But I don't think that's ultimately what killed Jesus. I don't think that's ultimately the reason he's on the cross. In John chapter 14, you, you rewind a little bit earlier into the story. Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples, giving them a little pregame pep talk. I'm about to go. And this is what he says to them. I will no longer talk with you, uh, much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. He's talking about Satan, specifically referencing Satan entering into Judas to betray him. It's all about to go down, he says. But listen, he's, he says it's not, it's not Satan. 
This isn't Satan winning. This isn't Judas, ultimately, that's killing me. This isn't Pilate. This isn't Peter. This, isn't the, this is not even the Roman guards who are driving the nails into his body. What was it that killed Jesus? He tells us in the next verse. But I do, I do, as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Come on, let's go. It was Jesus' obedience to the good will of the Father, stemming from his trust in the love of the Father, that the love of the Father that he has for Jesus and has for this world. No, it was not anybody else. No human was killing Jesus. He reminds us this in John 10. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge, this command, I have received from my Father. This was not Jesus losing an arm wrestling match with the world. This was Jesus obeying his Father. Why did he come? To seek and save the lost. And he knew... He knew that dying in our place was the only way to do it. So when God told him this was the plan, he trusted his father. He obeyed his father. And he came and he died in our place. And this is the final scene, Luke 23. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, middle of the day, noon to three, complete darkness. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two, symbolic of the entrance to the Holy of Holies. There's now an access into a holy God's presence once again through this very act. Then Jesus, calling out in a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. His Father... My life's in your hands. And what we see here with Jesus is he's doing what no other character was able to do that final week. Unlike Judas, he never betrayed his father. Even when Satan was in the desert and he said, I'm giving you anything you want. I give you all the kingdoms of the world if you'll just bow down and worship me. What Jesus was telling him there, unlike Judas, he said, I trust my father over any amount of money, over any possessions, over all the kingdoms of the world. He's all that I need. I would never sell my father out. And then we look at the people-pleasing of Pilate. Unlike Pilate, Jesus never got intimidated by the crowds. Jesus was never trying to win a popularity contest. When Jesus preached, attendance dropped, right? That's how I'll know when I start to be successful. And just like Pilate, Jesus... He had, he had Barabbas killed in Jesus' place, a condemned pr- criminal, and, and Jesus turns that on its head, and, and Jesus willingly took Pilate's place on the cross. He took my place, he took your place. All Jesus cared about was the approval of his father, not the approval of sinful man. And unlike Peter, Jesus wasn't ultimately afraid of the Sanhedrin or the Roman guards. Now look, was Jesus afraid? And he was, he, there was sweat, there was blood sweat coming from his, his, uh, his, his head in the garden. This is not Jesus without emotion. This is not without Jesus having any fear. But there was a love and a trust in his father that was greater than his fear. And even in the remember when Peter whips out the little dagger and he goes, let's take him? What did he say to Peter? Peter, put the dagger down. I could snap my fingers and call tens of thousands of angels in a moment if I wanted to. I'm God. But he prayed in the garden, not my will, but yours be done. He feared his father more than man. And so when the council asked Jesus who he was, unlike Peter, he did not deny his father and he did not deny his mission. To the point of death, he was obedient. 
And unlike every other human being of all time, Jesus was the only one who didn't put himself first, which is ironic because he's God. But he said, Father, even though I've been forsaken by everybody else, betrayed, denied, condemned, and even though I'm here on a cross and I'm bleeding and I can't breathe and I'm on the brink of death, my life's in your hands. And I trust you even to the point of death, even when I don't see a way out. And Jesus became for us what we could never be unto our God. 2 Corinthians 5, For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin, so that we could be made right with God through Christ. Or maybe you've heard it, we became, He became sin, who knew no sin, so that we could become the righteousness of God. The only human, the only human who ever perfectly trusted His Father, died in the place of those who never trusted Him. And so here's the good news today. The good news today is not that I've never denied my Father. I have, and I, continue to, I will continue to do that. At times. The good news is not that I've never betrayed him. The good news is not that I'll never be proud. The good news is not that I'll never slip into a fearing man or seeking man's approval. That's not the good news. The good news is that I did all of that, but the, the good news is that there's one who came who never did those things, who perfectly trusted the Father, died in my place, and now I get his life in me and I'm acceptable to the Father, not because I'm good, but because Jesus was good for me. That's the good news. That's the good news. So what was it that killed Jesus? It was not the actions of sinful men ultimately. It was the love of God. It was a God who said, I want relationship with my people once again, so I'm sending my own son to die in your place to give you the right kind of life so that I can accept you and have a relationship with you. It was his will and his love that Jesus obeyed even to the point of crucifixion. I want to invite you this, this Friday. Um, we're going to have a time here at the church, 6 to 8 o'clock. And we're going to go through stations of these very scenes that we've been looking through today. And it's going to be unhurried time where it's just going to be self-paced as we walk from station to station, room to room. There's some kind of tactile responses there. We're going to have coins like Judas was holding. And we're going to have some, the bowl like Pilate washed his hands into to remind us as we identify with the sinful characters in the story of the ways that we've denied and, and betrayed Jesus our pride, but we're also going to remember that night as we take communion, we're going to remember that we are forgiven and accepted by the one who became for us what we could never be for God. It was God's love that put Jesus on the cross and put him in the grave, but he didn't stay in the grave, did he? And next weekend, we're going to have a party as we celebrate that this Jesus that we serve, this Jesus that we follow, he's not dead. He's alive. He's alive right now. And on Easter Sunday, we celebrate that. We party about that, that, that Jesus is alive. Now, this is a weird place for me to end on, but listen, Easter Sunday is a special Sunday. The church calendar, we're kind of on the radar in the community. And there are a lot of people who come. We lovingly call them CEOs, Christmas and Easter only. Like, <laughs> okay. We still love them. They only come a couple times a year. So here's the deal. Here's the deal. We... We want, this might be the only chance for some people who come on Easter Sunday to be able to hear the message of the good news that Jesus is alive and why that is the most important thing in their lives. But they can't hear if they don't have a seat. So here's, here's what we've been asking. Ron, I mentioned it earlier in the announcements. If you can come, and I, everybody's situation is different. We're not going to condemn you too harshly uh, if you don't. But uh, we have a 9 a.m. service that we have plenty of space. And so we want to invite as many of our regulars to come to first service. And the heart of it being this. It's a small act, but it's an act of love. To say we're going to open it. Because most people, the new, the new people, the, the CEOs, usually are going to come that second hour. So if we can free up that 1045 service with more and more seats, that's more opportunities for people to come in as we do anticipate it being packed. We're going to start with the kids over next 
next door, as that will help with some of that. Um, but come to that first hour and then save that seat for the second hour. Um, we're also going to have some free Easter baskets filled with cash underneath the chairs in the first hour. So if, if that's momentum, then let it be. Um, Jesus is alive. He is risen. All right, we got a week. We'll work on that. Uh, Father, we thank you. We thank you that he is risen indeed. We, we thank you that, that as we come to you, we are, we are fully acknowledging our own brokenness. Lord, I, I look at the life of, of Judas, and I see how many times, even right now as I'm trying to sell my house, how easy it is to freak out about if there'll be a buyer and what that time will be, and just evidences in my heart how much I, tr- I put trust in money and possessions before I trust my God. And I look, at, I look at the life of Peter and the way that he was afraid of these little servant girls and wouldn't, wouldn't declare that he knew Jesus. Lord, and I see my cowardice and how often I do things because of the fear of how people react to me and how badly I just want people to like me. And so instead of fearing my God, the lover of my soul, I fear other people who, so, who with such fickle hearts come in and come out based on my behavior. Father, your love for us is not based on our performance. It's based... On the, on the fact that you created us in your image. And then when we went astray, you sent your son to this earth. And we're, we're celebrating this week that, that there was one who came, a Messiah, a king, who lived the life we could never live, who perfectly trusted you, who perfectly obeyed you, even unto the point of death, taking our place on the cross, forgiving us. And in this new risen life that we're going to celebrate next Sunday, that new life can be placed inside of us, made one with Jesus. And on that grounds, you accept us. So we come today not boasting in our own good works, but confessing our sin. If there's somebody here this morning that needs to repent, needs to confess of their sin, that they would not delay in that. Somebody who may may have never placed their faith in this Jesus who was good for them. And we pray, especially next week, as we invite people in to come and join us in our Easter service, that somebody's, that you would raise the dead next week, just like you did with Jesus, that more hearts will be turned from stone and, and to know their Savior and their Lord and to follow him. Father, we pray this week that there would be space for us as families, as individuals, that we would remember as we walk through Good Friday, we walk through the Resurrection Sunday, this is a special week to remember the death, burial, and resurrection of our Savior and our God, that we would be a people that would worship Him and Him alone. Thank you for forgiving us. Thank you for dying in our place. Thank you for giving us your new life. It's in Jesus' perfect, obedient name that we pray. Amen.